The following podcast contains explicit language. This is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. Nobody bucks me on the head with a baguette edition. It's Wednesday, January 24th, 2018. On today's show, The Assassination of Johnny Versace, Season 2 of Ryan Murphy's American Crime Story. Then we'll sit down for some marmalade sandwiches and an in-depth discussion of the best film of 2018, Paddington 2. And finally, the New York Times explores in remarkable depth the current state of the art of drag. Thanks in large part to RuPaul's Drag Race, queens have greater cultural prominence than ever before. But what happens to the art form when a handful of TV stars suck up all the oxygen? I'm Dan Coyce. I'm an editor at Slate and the co-author of the forthcoming The World Only Spins Forward, The Ascent of Angels in America, based on the explosive Slate cover story. Steve, Julia, and and Dana are in Sundance as we're recording. In fact, they're doing a live show tonight in Utah. So today I'm joined by June Thomas, managing producer of Slate Podcast. Hi, June. Hey, Dan. June, you know how Basic Cable will air those made-for-TV thrillers, and you see an actor, and you're like, that role was written for Joe Mantegna. But they couldn't get Joe Mantegna, yes. so they hired some basic cable version of Joe Mantegna. Yes. I'm glad to be on the basic cable gap. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so glad to be the basic Josephine Mantegna. Yeah. Uh, and associate editor at Slate, Brian Louder. Hello, Brian. Hello. Welcome back from Book Leave, Brian. I won't ask you the state of your book <laughs> if you don't oh, ask me the state of mine. Let's not do that to each other. No, no, yes. no. Let's, let's not. Uh, all right. I'm glad to be here with you guys. Welcome and welcome listeners. Um, why don't we start off today with the blood spattered dove that is the assassination of Johnny Versace. It's the second season of Ryan Murphy's anthology series, American Crime Story, and it's got big shoes to fill. Season one about OJ Simpson is generally considered a high watermark both of peak TV and of our current infatuation with true crime. The new series stars Edgar Ramirez as Johnny Versace, Penelope Cruz as Donatella, and mostly it stars Darren Chris as Andrew Cunanan, the serial killer whose cross-country murder spree reached its climax when he shot Versace on the front steps of his Miami Beach mansion in 1997. Let's hear a clip. Signore Versace, buonasera. This is my friend Andrew. Hi. It's good to see you in San Francisco. Thank you. I'm excited to see the opera. I think it's time we had a contemporary designer working on it. Have we met before? Yes. Lago di Como. Garden party at your residence. I was by the shore admiring your view and we exchanged a few words. You were most gracious. Of course, I remember it, but for you to remember it is very flattering. Yeah, Lago di Como. That must be it. Yes. Yes. My mother's parents are from Italy. From the south, Scilacci is their family name, maybe you know them. My mother still feels a very strong connection to the country, but in truth, she's never been. Can you believe that? An Italian-American that's never even seen her own country? She never returned with you. Honestly, I think she's scared. It's almost as if she wants to keep Italy only in her mind as this perfect place. Well, all right. Well, all right, indeed. Uh, so that's a scene from the first episode. 
uh, a flashback um, from the 1997 murder of a possibly imagined first meeting between Kunanen and Versace in a club in San Francisco in 1990. Um, June, I'm curious, you know, the OJ season of this show really benefited from most Americans, you know, encyclopedic recall yes. of the bananas events of 1994 and 1995. So I guess my first question about this second season is, can American crime story work if it's a story that that fewer Americans remember, if it's one that is sort of less embedded in our national consciousness? Well, before I watched the five or so episodes of this that I had watched, I would have said, yes, that in fact, it was a freak, you know, accident of OJ mania that that first season worked because it was so excessively exposed and it didn't seem possible that Ryan Murphy and his team could find anything new to say. Well, as we know, they did. But I thought that maybe a murder uh, or a crime story that was less known that we weren't kind of getting ahead of in our own heads would be more compelling because we would actually learn something. We would find some details and, you know, it just, that didn't happen for me with this. There were things that I didn't know. I had really no idea about the spree. I knew that Andrew Cunanan had killed Johnny Versace, but I had no idea about the the things that came before. And it still didn't make it all that compelling for me. It wasn't really about what I knew or, uh, you know, the details of the crimes. It was more about the kind of the compellingness of the story. And this one kind of made me feel a little bit icky to be watching it. Interesting. Well, I mean, it does seem like there isn't much of a mystery here in the sense that it's not, it's very clear who killed Johnny Versace, unlike in season one, when it at least sort of teased that we might not know who, who killed uh, Nicole Brown and, and Ron Goldman. But the mystery that this, this show seems to be pointing at is the mystery of how Andrew Cunanan became Andrew Cunanan by starting at the murder and going backwards through time. Brian, what did you think? Do you have, based on what you've seen so far, do you think that that's a mystery worth untangling? You know, I had a similar reaction uh, to June. I, d- I actually didn't know anything about this. I-, I had never heard of this murder or of this person. Uh, and then when I found out that uh, he was gay and that the the show would be sort of about, uh, in some ways, about uh, gay culture in the 90s, I was interested and very, very excited to see it. And actually watching the first, uh, I think I saw six episodes of it, um, I found it kind of um, unsurprising and predictable and, and the beats and the and the things that it seems to want to sort of suggest that explain Andrew uh, didn't surprise me at all. The only thing that is surprising is that is to the extent to which he takes them uh, and the way that he sort of snaps on people and murders people, obviously. But um, his motivations and sort of... Um, his psyche uh, aren't that surprising, I don't think. And so I, I watched it because, it, you know, I got as far as I did because it was, I think it is entertaining in certain ways. I mean, and sort of gorgeous the way Ryan Murphy's productions usually are. But but no, I, I didn't find it particularly um, insightful or surprising. No. Um, you touch on this a little bit. It seems like in the way that season one of this show wanted to deal with big questions about uh, race in America. Um, season two wants to deal with big questions of homophobia in America. And mm-hmm. you see that even in that first episode when there's these um, scenes of these very bewildered straight cops questioning um, Versace's partner, Antonio D'Amico, who's played by Ricky Martin, actually, mm-hmm. uh, who, who, with surprising soulfulness, I thought. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it's clear that sort of the their bewilderment 
is going to be, and the bewilderment and fear that straight people have toward gay culture um, in this era is is going to be a thread running through this. Is that a coherent thread? Did you guys, in the episodes that you've watched, did you see any kind of real statement on what homophobia or looked like in the 90s? And is there then a statement as to what it looks like today? I was very moved, actually, by the message of the kind of the that the closet will kill you. And when I said that to somebody who had who had watched a few episodes, she was like, what, Cunanan? But no, and I didn't mean Cunanan. I was talking about his victims. Cunanan was uh, a psychopath. He preyed on old closeted men of means. And for those men, it's very, very painful. Like they could not be themselves. Some of them were married. Some of them were just so desperate to avoid, uh, you know, exposure that they would put themselves in terrible danger they would uh you know and and ultimately at least one was killed and that's you know and that was convi- that was done very well i discovered later that most of the episodes uh, were written by tom rob smith who wrote london spy which dan weirdly you and i talked about on an episode of culture gabfest that we were on together uh and i think he is a very good writer at showing how the closet and familial and societal homophobia really restrict people's lives, you know, that they just get in the way of self-actualization, of self-love, of kind of recognizing your own self-worth. And he's that is really, really moving. But the problem that I had with the film is that there's just kind of no hero. Those men are, you know, there's a lot of tragedy there, um, but there's not, you know, there's there's no one in the there's no equivalent of you know, um, Marsha Clark in the OJ movie. There's you know of somebody who's being reconsidered and like okay, you know, you were wrong about this person. History has been unfair. There was just kind of everything was there was an element of tragedy, but there was kind of nothing. There was no one to root for. You certainly were never ever going to root for uh, for Cunanan, but you weren't going to root for the cops either because they were horrible homophobes who you know were living tiny lives uh, that, you know, with some terrible, ridiculous, stereotypical ideas. So there's just no one to root for. Yeah, I I think, um, and I think this is a Ryan Murphy trait in general. uh, I think that his, um, when he looks at issues like this and, you know, the the big issue here being uh, what it was like to be gay in the 90s and sort of before our enlightened modern uh, era, um, it gets very didactic and very kind of um, limited and and uh, one dimensional. So it's like you know we've got DADT in this in this show. Um, we've got the closet that June talked about so beautifully, especially among older men. Um, we've got kind of a gay underground subculture that that he portrays or that the show portrays as being um, kind of closed off from the rest of the world and perhaps dangerous for people because of that. Uh, and of course, gay life uh, was not as, you know, it was not as certainly not as free in the 90s as it is now, but it also wasn't all bad. Uh, and it was a strange, it was sort of an unrecognizable portrait to me to see, to be in, in, in so many gay spaces and to not have anyone that was sort of uh, happy or out or proud um, or or living life in a more um, fulfilling way that could, you know, and probably recognize uh, the pathology that, that, Kunanan was bringing into those spaces, I, you know, uh, gay space is usually pretty self-policing and you had nothing about, uh, you know, no sign of that uh, in any of these um, moments. So, I, you know, I think I think he's like right that DADT was a bad thing. That is to say, don't ask, don't tell. Don't ask, don't tell, right. Uh, you know, the, none of, none, he's not wrong. The show's not wrong about any of these 
things, uh, but it's also just sort of simplistic in a way. Um, and, and, and it felt odd to me. Um, yeah. Yeah. The signposting of a lot of these scenes, even in that first episode, like it reminded me actually of the Gabfest discussion last week of the post where, it, you know, every, every scene in a gay space, uh, for example, that club that in, that we hear, heard that clip from just now, you know, it's their plane last night, a DJ saved my life. And it looks, it's like designed exactly like your 2018 imagination of a 1992 gay club. And then that encounter between them is charged yet somehow happens from eight feet away from each other. And then both speaking in a low voice, but able to magically hear each other. But like, <laughs> it felt like, it felt like, you know, the, the, perfectly production designed version of the gayest gay club from 1990 you could ever imagine, yeah. but did not feel real to me. It felt airless and production design, like within an inch of its life. There's something about Versace to him. Like he, if there is, you know, a, not exactly a hero, but a sympathetic figure and an uncompromisingly sympathetic figure is Gianni Versace, who's played yeah. very well by Agar Ramirez, but th- he's also like, he's, he's too much of uh He's too good to be true. Yeah, you know he's the he's a he's a brilliant designer, which yes he was, who can explain everything, who's all about the women, who can afford his unimaginably expensive items. He's you know a good partner and a good brother, and a, you know he's he's well, and being so brave about to... coming out in the advocate profile. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean he, I think our TV critic Willa Paskin called him a saint. Uh, yeah, exactly. it's hard to, I think she said something like it's hard to play a saint. And that's true. I mean, he's he's very appealing, uh, the actor and and the the character that's created here. Uh, but yeah, it's like it's not it's not like a real person, right? And and without any of any of the complexity that that particular person would have had in the '90s, especially around coming out, uh, he's just so like strong headed about it, especially yeah. in a scene with Donatella. Yeah, that's really great. Um, but but it makes no sense. Like it's not realistic at all. I don't think. Yeah. What did you guys think of uh, Darren Chris, who ends up being the center of this? He uh, he is a Ryan Murphy vet. Mm-hmm. Uh, plays Kunan, and it, I mean, you can really hear it in that scene as a very weaselly, insinuating uh, fabricator and falsifier. Um, who, you know, whose story we are digging into over the course of these episodes. You know, I didn't get the impression that that he necessarily can make us understand a potentially incomprehensible character like Andrew Cunanan. Although I will say that I found him like very compelling on screen and, and he like he was giving us all, but what did you guys think of him? I think that he has a perfect face and affect for this kind of role. And I actually, when I was watching it, I sort of, worry that he may get um typecast as like a, as, a sociopath as a sociopath because yeah because he i mean he really <laughs> care especially in the first couple episodes i felt like he he care he has the sort of subtle um tweak of, of expression in the moment when he turns on somebody you, you see that a few times or when he realizes he's going to have to act in a different way than he has been or that his lie is not sticking the way he wants it to he he registers that stuff really well i think as the show goes on in later episodes he gets a little sticky about it 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 gets a little it it looks like he's referencing other sociopath performances but in general i thought he in terms of the acting i thought he pulled it off beautifully i just think the character again as as we said is sort of not complicated enough to to do too much with but but just in terms of embodying creepy um person who who whose motivations we can understand he's great yeah there's there's a there is a scene that i think is in 
four or five. So it's it's beyond where uh, America has yet seen. But it's where some, you know, at least one or two of his victims are people who were, according to this version of events, kind of tired of being his friends. They had a connection with him, but it was kind of wearing off. Um, they didn't really want to be associated with him anymore. They knew that he was lying. They knew that he was a, just a pathological liar. They wanted him out of their lives, but they were nice people. And it's kind of hard to shed someone like that, especially when you can see that they're you know, not doing well right now. You want, if you're a good person, you want to help them. And so there's some, there was one really part that I connected with, which like we all have, hopefully not a murderous psychopath, but, um, you know, s- some relationship that's kind of like that, that, you, you know, it's kind of a relationships that, a relationship that's outworn its, its, its kind of its natural life, but that you, you're sort of out of politeness that isn't really politeness and is actually rather rude and, and condescending. You maintain it. And, and so there are, you know, the fact that I, you know, went through my own little story, you know, referencing something from a TV show in my own life, that is a sign that, you know, this show broke through somehow. But it's very, very distant because he's just a cipher of a sociopath. And no, of course, we don't see what motivates him because it's not seeable. It's sociopathy. Right. It's 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 unknowable and inexplicable. And so... If that if that is the purpose of the show, which it sure seems to be given the way it's kind of structured, it's never going to work. We're never going to – I don't see how satisfaction was ever possible. And one thing I worry about is that um, – I, I don't know if the show – I don't know if I go so far as to say the show is trying to do this. But one reading I think could be that a certain kind of uh, sociopathy – may be endemic to a strain of gay culture like so so his his whole sort of status obsessed labels over content um kind of uh orientation to the world is is a kind of queen that you meet like Mm -hmm. that is that is a type of gay that exists and existed i think existed more in the past um and maybe more in the 90s and earlier than that i think now status obsession in the community has moved a little bit more towards like marriage and babies and like <laughs> a, a different kind of status. But, um, but I do worry a bit that the show is, is sort of arguing or could be read as arguing that, that there's something about gay culture that, that creates a person like this. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think we should think hard about that because I'm not, I'm not entirely sure that's accurate. That's really interesting. It's, it's sort of the, the series sort of makes overt what, I, what has always been sort of the, covert queer reading of American psycho, for example, mm-hmm, like right. that, which has a very similar feel in a lot of ways and is similarly stylish and beautiful and unable or unwilling or uninterested in really cracking, you know, the what's going on inside its character, or maybe just observing that there could never be anything going on inside that character that is comprehensible or understandable to us. And then, and in doing, you know, one thing that this show elides, um, and, and I think struggles with on multiple fronts is race, something that the mm-hmm. first season did so well. Inku Kong wrote and slate a really fascinating piece about the, about the way that the series elides Andrew Kanan's Filipino background. His father was Filipino and she writes really fascinatingly about the, the way that he, you know, far from being forgotten in the way that many of us have forgotten him, it remains a, a kind of touchstone for gay Filipinos in particular. Um, and, you know, the series does not deal with that 
very much at all. There is apparently in an episode that none of us have seen a fairly dynamite performance by the actor playing that father. Um, I think that's maybe in episode seven or eight, uh, which maybe sheds a little more light on, on that issue in his life. But there, you know, but there, there, so there's like that disappointing way that the series, uh, isn't quite on the ball on race. And then there's the sort of almost comedic way that it isn't quite on the ball, which is just what I found a fascinating quirk of casting in this movie is that a bunch of Italians are portrayed by Spanish Latin American, yes. American yeah. actors. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Penelope Cruz in particular, uh, right. was, that accent had nothing to do with Italy whatsoever. It was, it was, right. it's great. I mean, it's funny, but not it's, accurate. It's, just, it's yeah. like this hilarious American provincialism, like, well, you seem European, I guess, Penelope Cruz. You're <laughs> yeah. good enough. And it's just, and a, it should be said, she's great. Like, she's, she's, so, she's such a force yeah. in her scenes, but it's also hilarious. Yeah, it's, I was very puzzled, but I mean, when I heard the cast, the casting of this, particular American crime story just seems so bananas, so amazing. And it is. I mean, it's it's just a, the, a megawatt cast uh, from all, you know, from Ricky Martin to Penelope Cruz. I mean, we have this just amazing range of, of fame and stardom. And Penelope Cruz, I think, does manage to be quite subtle, which is not something that you expect either from Penelope Cruz or Donatella Versace. <laughs> But there, there is like a, it's almost a smallness to it that I wanted, you know, I mean, it's Donatella Versace, mm-hmm. you know, I just, yes, she's bereaved. She's, you know, in the scenes, certainly that I've seen, she's bereaved and, and you know, potentially lost. It's, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of emotional damage and hurt that she's experiencing, but she's so small. And this is a character that we know to be immense. Yeah. And I don't think we get the impression of like, oh, that's just PR. She's not really like, no, it's not that. It's just that that's the way she's written in the show. And it doesn't feel right. I, Dan, I like also you wanted lo- Maya Rudolph to just show up and knock out. <laughs> kind of. Maybe I am a little bit too much influenced by Maya Rudolph's version. Um, and Dennis, you know, I also found Inku's uh, piece fascinating. And I, I have a theory. I mean, why race wasn't tackled so quite so much in the way that homophobia was. And I think, you know, the explanations are, you know, racism, we'll, we'll just stipulate that. Um, you know, there just are very, very, very few portrayals of Asian Americans on television. And there seems to be an impression that, uh, you know, that non-Asian Americans won't be that interested. So it, let's just accept that that's a big reason. But also, I think there's this issue of like, you know, that we were kind of, fainting at before of we don't you know that ryan murphy doesn't want to be you know those one have people pointing at the show and saying this is so anti-gay you just point talking about this gay murderer it's very anti-gay because he can at least say well look at all these other gay people i'm showing a variety of gay experience and yes this is a true story he was a murderous gay but there are also you know loving gays and mm. you know etc cetera, etc cetera, and victim gays and kind gays whereas the only other Asian American in the show is his father, who, you know, by all accounts, caused a lot of his or certainly sowed a lot of the seeds that led to his, you know, terrible, uh, you know, mental illness. And so it's so lim- if you focus too much on that, you would have to provide, you know, a whole you would need to provide some positive versions of Filipino American life. And that would be a too didactic and be hard to really hard to justify in a show that's called The Assassination of Gianni Versace. Yeah, yeah and I also, I, also, I also don't know that I would want Ryan Murphy to take on that. Yeah. Like, I mean, he he's, 
I, I actually am a big Murphy fan. Like I, I am always interested in what he's doing, but I think, I think certain issues require a more nuanced touch and that what you're talking about might, I think, I think he's also very much in a mood. It seems to me right now where he's, he's sort of like studying gay history and culture through his work. Um, he's about yeah. to produce boys, boys in the band again on, on Broadway, which is fascinating. Um, he did the normal heart, like yeah. many, th- he's doing many things. That it's like, he's trying to sort of eat it all up. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's interesting to watch. Uh, and that means he has a little more facility with those issues than others. So maybe maybe we're blessed that he didn't dig into the race question more. All right. Thank you, guys. Uh, American Crime Story, The Assassination of Johnny Versace is on FX. Um, I would give it a cautious recommend if you uh, if you want to see something beautiful and maybe empty. You guys? Same. It's it's quite hard. You know, like Tom Rob Smith's London Spy, the first episode had some really things that were very hard to watch before we got to this very interesting psychological uh, representation. Uh, and I, I would say there's a lot of stuff that's really hard to watch in the middle of some interesting historical representation here, too. Yeah, I'd say if you want if you want to see the pretty Versace clothes and and the the palace and all that, watch the first two, and then you can you can leave it if you don't like it. But um, you know, if you like to see murders and and craziness, stay with it. <laughs> Let's knock out some business. Real Steve Metcalf, take it away. All right, Steve popping in here from out of the ether. Uh, I just wanted to let you know about an event that I'm doing at Bard College on Thursday, February fifteenth. I will be interviewing the journalist Joe Hagen, who wrote the wonderful biography of Jan Wenner that's gotten a lot of attention, a lot of praise. Anyway, that's at the Weiss Cinema at Bard College on uh, February 15th. That's a Thursday evening at 5 p.m. Come check it out. It's open to the public. All right. Popping back up into the ether. Thanks, Actual Steve. Uh, I've also got a little business. In the summer of 2016, I came on the GabFest to talk with the non-basic cable gabfesters about the slate cover story I wrote with Isaac Butler, The Oral History of Angels in America. Now that cover story has been expanded into a book, and we might be coming to your town to put on a chaotic stage reading from that book. The book's called The World Only Spins Forward, The Ascent of Angels in America. Um, Isaac Butler, my co-author, and I will be at Politics and Prose on the Wharf in D.C. on February 21st. It will be at the Brooklyn Historical Society on March 8th. We hope to see you there. In our Slate Plus segment this week, we are answering a listener question about what embarrassing apps we have on our phones. You can hear it if you are a member of Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Please join members of Slate Plus. Get free segments of their favorite podcasts. You get bonus uh, Culture Gabfest, bonus Hang Up and Listen, bonus Slow Burn for those of you who are slow burn heads and can't get enough NAFOC in your brain. Join Slate Plus at Slate.com slash Culture Plus. All right, moving on to Paddington 2. The Oscar nominations came out Tuesday morning, the day we're recording, and there's a lot of debate out there about whether three billboards can overtake Get Out to be named Best Picture of 2017. But here on the GabFest, we're already talking about the Best Picture of 2018, Paddington 2. That's right, the story of a wee bear who lives with his friends in London and gets sent to jail as a critical darling. The freshest movie in Rotten Tomatoes history with 100 on the old tomato meter from 169 critics. It's got a very of the moment pro-immigration and anti-incarceration message. It's made $25 million at the box office, a huge haul for a tiny art house art movie. It stars this year's Oscar nominee, Sally Hawkins, and next year's Oscar nominee, at least according to Slate, Hugh Grant. Let's hear a clip. When Madame Kozlova created this thing all those years ago, she most certainly was not thinking of people like me. Whatever I am, VIP, celebrity, I hate all that stuff. No, no, 
West End legend. That's another. <laughs> no, no. She was thinking of you guys, huh? The ordinary people. So, I'm going to ask one of you to come up here and open the fair. Volunteers. Anyway. Eeny, meeny, miny. Bear. Oh, let's have the young bear. Wine pot. Come, come, young Ursine. Thank you. Up here, my furry friend. Very good, very good. Now, your name is? Paddington Brown. Oh, well, of course it is. You are my new neighbour. You live with Henry and Mary and the great Mrs... Now then, I suppose you know who I am. Oh, yes. You're a very famous actor. Oh, Pooh. <laughs> or used to be. Now you do dog food commercials. <laughs> well, a man has to eat. What? Dog food? <laughs> Uh, so, are you guys ready to put all your Oscar money on Paddington 2 for 2018? June, what did you think? Is it a masterpiece? It is. I am actually, uh, I'm getting, gathering all my Bitcoin to send it to Las Vegas because it really was, <laughs> it was so great. I had been in a bad mood. I had some gum surgery. I couldn't eat. I was in a, I was just feeling sorry for myself. I was just been in a little bit of a gray cloud over my head for a few days and I went to see this film and like my mood was absolutely like it's like my soul was washed by Paddington. I felt like it's just full of the joy of life and the, you know, seeing the good in everybody. And that could be a disaster, but it was lovely. I just I just found it so refreshing and fun and nice and nice in a way that wasn't embarrassing. Uh, Brian, were you embarrassed or did you also find it nice? Oh, I adored it. No, I thought it, I thought it was the cutest, sweetest mouthful of marmalade i've 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 ever had i no, i i mean and i i am i'm a i'm a somewhat sentimental movie watcher sometimes but i typically don't fall for kids movies um but this one had me you know i, I was awing a couple minutes in and by the end i was almost crying um, i mean it really is that good um and and beautifully done. It helps that um, uh, Paddington is voiced by my celebrity crush, uh, number one, Ben Wishaw. Um, oh, yes. So I'm, I'm a little biased. But uh, but in general, the, the movie is just excellent. I, I can't say enough good things about it. Dan, ben Wishaw, who in real life is not a bear. No, he's not <laughs> no. not a gay bear nor nor a real bear. Uh, no, but but yes, quite quite a lovely man. Dan Coyce, since you are, I'm quite sure, much more familiar with the contemporary output of children's films i'm really curious to know what you made of it what's your take on this film oh i think it's a total masterpiece i mean i think it is a, a real high point in in all ages filmmaking right now like it's pixarian i think in how uh technically inventive it is and how tight and sharp and great the script is and then in a way that even pixar really hasn't been able to accomplish it's total open-hearted warmth and sincerity about the message that it's delivering and its unwillingness to undercut that with even the tiniest like little smirk uh or cynicism i find so beautiful and refreshing i'm a total sucker for this movie you know um i love this idea of like this cheerful multicultural london where even the jails are full of basically nice people um who just need a little push uh, to be friendly when when it's time to be friendly uh, and you know with a, a trinidadian calypso chorus following us everywhere commenting on our action i just completely love it 
Yeah, I, I mean, that's actually, I mean, I loved it. I'm now struggling to find something so we're not just, you know, saying awe and how magnificent it was. But the jail stuff, it was the only time where I just had kind of a moment of thinking, is this really doing us any favors? Because yes, this this message of like, we just have to be open and kind and look for the good and just avoid cynicism at all costs. Like, it, yes, that's obviously a fine and decent message that we should all take on board and would all make our lives better. But, you know, jails are terrible places. British jails are having an awful time right now. They're, you know, the predictable things. They're overcrowded. They're racist. They're full of drugs. And is it infantilizing to say that, oh, they just need to, like, see the good in each other? They just need to... And, you know, this actually came up when they were getting read a bedtime story. And I thought, well, that's childish. So obviously, it's a children's movie. I get we don't quite read things straight on. But am I crazy and just too deeply cynical to just have the slightest kind of uncertainty about whether that's really such a fantastic thing? Dan, talk me up. Talk me down. Well, and Dan, just to jump in there, Dan, in your, I think in your, in your introduction to this segment, you said it's anti-incarceration. Um, and I, that's a question I had, actually. Yeah. I wasn't entirely not. And again, I agree. Children's movies need not be read too hard but uh, or too closely but i think i was wondering about that because it seemed to be wanting so this is there's a a portion of the film where paddington goes to jail or to prison um and and sort of uh you know in a a series of beautiful set pieces kind of makes it over and and brings out yeah the good and good in the people he meets there um and yeah i couldn't quite decide if that was saying that Prisons can be nice places too, which is not something I totally politically love. Right. Or, or if it was saying prisons are bad, so let's or you know, or the way we do prisons at least is bad now, and so we should rethink what humane treatment would look like. I, I wasn't entirely clear what the message was, so I wonder. Yeah, I wonder about that as well. That's a good question. It probably isn't actually anti-incarceration. It's probably pro-incarceration with bedtime stories. Uh, it's <laughs> true like that the version, <laughs> the version of prison in this movie is very old-timey, right? Right down to the black and white striped uh, outfits that every matching outfits that everyone right. wears, which turn pink and white striped after a mishap with a red <laughs> sock in the prison laundry. Um, and you know, it's an, an old-timey prison canteen where one prisoner does all the cooking for everyone. It's like a small artisanal prison from 1948. Right. Uh, nevertheless, I do think there's like a very sweet message there, which if you want to pull the strings of this children's movie and find its relevance on this particular issue, you can easily read as an argument that even prisoners, even the worst of the worst uh, demand a humane place to be and kind treatment and that kind treatment can cause them to flourish in unexpected ways. Now, I don't think that uh, the writers and directors of this movie think that all of Britain's prisoners, if they were just given marmalade sandwiches and bedtime stories, would turn out to have hearts of gold. But I do think you can at the very least think that if we are not brutal to our prisoners, uh, we have the ch- a better chance at reforming them and reintroducing them to society than if we just feed them whatever that gruel is the knuckles <laughs> for them every day. Right. Yeah. yeah. There, there was a, you know, one of the, you mentioned earlier, Dan, that uh, Hugh Grant uh, is, has this bravura turn in this movie. He plays Phoenix Buchanan and he's, you know, the ultimate thespian as we heard in the clip. And the story that we, you know, he, he essentially gets Paddington locked up because he's, he's on and he's trying to figure 
he's committing crimes in a very sort of gentle way, uh, but still crimes. Um, and the thing about Phoenix is that he can only appear on his own. He's, you know, he, he's, just, he's mentally ill, actually, uh, but he talks to, he creates characters and he talks to himself in, in these characters. And in the end, when he gets sent to jail, spoiler alert, he finds happiness because it, essentially jail is the end of his loneliness. Mm. And so all of his problems are disappear. You know, he, he, he has an audience, but he also, you know, he's, he's kind of, he, he's performing with the other prisoners. So it, they're all uniting and, you know, it's, it's a lovely story. But again, like the underpinnings of like, so the way to cure loneliness, right, is just to send people to jail. <laughs> I mean, and yeah, it's punishment. Like, yeah, I get it. Like, I, I know I'm being ridiculous. I am. But <laughs> maybe only like, you know, middle-aged people with no children get to these levels instead of just like, that was lovely. I well, can it see was, that every No, it, it was lovely, but I also think that it, that it I mean, there was another, uh, um, perhaps related, but an, another question I had, which is one of Paddington's um, sort of little mantras throughout is, uh, if you're kind and polite, the world will be right. Uh, and I love that. I'm, I, I'm, I'm, you know, uh, noted etiquette uh, connoisseur. I, I'm in, also I'm in, Eagle Scout. And Eagle Scout. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I, I love that sentiment. But at the same time, I feel like we're living in a moment right now where uh, vulgarity and rudeness and uh, you know, the antithesis of that statement is winning is, it, yeah. it is, is, has not been defeated. I mean, you could, you know, not everything is about Trump, but however, in this case, <laughs> you could, you could say that in fact, you know, Hillary Clinton trying to be polite and, and nice didn't work. Yeah. Uh, and so watching the film, I, I wanted to really lean into that feeling, but at the same time, I was like, is that true? Like maybe, I don't know. I just like, am I, yeah, and am I too cynical? I, right, I share right. that concern. Yeah. Um, Yet I don't know that a movie like this is supposed to reflect the world as it actually is, but sure. it, I look to it as a, a version of the best possible world we could live in a world in which if you are kind and polite, everything is right. A world in which immigrants are accepted wholeheartedly by nearly everyone in a community. And the mm. one person who naysays their influence is like heckled by other people on screen and in the audience. Uh, yeah. And so what I look to this movie for is to present to me, but also to children, the, the theoretical actual audience for this film, uh, a version of what a real kind of utopia could look like a place of happiness that has problems, but where those problems can be solved by the best aspects of our human or ursine nature. <laughs> uh, and I find that very satisfying. It's not what I want out of every movie, uh -huh. but it's what this movie wants to give us. And I ha can't think of a movie that does a better job of doing that. Yeah. And, and let's just not forget to mention this amazing cast. I mean, it, this is a thing that Britain does well, that you know, you turn on any old episode of Poirot or Miss Marple, and there are these amazing casts gathered for, you know, for twenty. Maybe they probably did ten minutes work each. You know, mm -hmm. but right. there's so many amazing performances. Julie Walters, who's doing like five minutes of work, she's got really one thing that she does, but she's great. And Sally Hawkins, amazing. It's like everybody gets their five minutes, right. uh, or everybody gets their scene. And it's, but they're all fantastic. Mm -hmm. It's, it's just so impressive. 
Uh, and the that, script does such a good job of giving them those moments and then making those moments pay off. Like, mm-hmm. you know, even the littlest, stupidest things that we get out of characters pay off. In the end, it's just an extremely tight story uh, in a way that I really love. Look, you know, I don't want to, like, overplay this movie's impact. It, I mean, it, it probably won't make as much money as the first Paddington, and it was produced by a sexual abuser, for fuck's sake. It, you know, it's a Weinstein movie that got released from Weinstein post it's the era but nevertheless the experience of taking a bunch of kids to this movie and watching them like laugh at and make fun of the one mean neighbor who says that outsiders don't belong i just think at some point the fact that kids entertainment today broadly is so much more humane than it was when i was a kid or when our parents were kids is going to have like a real actual impact on society. I really think this, you know, my kids are 10 and 12 and they have spent their childhoods watching inside out and Coraline and Mm. Paddington and wonder and, you know, fucking doc McStuffins, (laughs) all of which have this message delivered incredibly artfully and beautifully about, about accepting the world. And I, I really think the kids are going to be okay. Yeah, I mean, I was so impressed by how quiet the kids were in the audience. Like, you know, I went in the afternoon. There were a lot of kids in the audience. And before the movie, they were messing around. And, you know, they're children. Of course they were. That's, <laughs> right. They were doing what kids do. And there was maybe one kid talking in the film. And just probably because he didn't understand something. You know, whatever. It wasn't it wasn't ongoing. It was a little incident that was less than usually get in like adult movies. Right. And and I have to say that I was really freaked out. Again, I have no exposure to kids movies. Not I don't typically go to see them. And the previews were universally awful. And I understand <laughs> that you show like something because you just got to grab the kids attention. You got however many seconds, minutes, whatever. They all seem to involve violence. There was like multiple of these trailers involved electrocution. It was so violent and so awful. And yes, in a way, like, you know, the the slapstick scene in Singing in the Rain, not realistic, you know, it's not really, you know, it's not killing the thing. But almost like I was seriously worried that like, I hope kids don't get the message. It's okay to, you know, electrocute things, whatever. And so I was kind of, stared up when the movie like oh i hope it's not going to be too violent which is on its face just a ridiculous thing to be worrying about but there it was so i think i suspect there's something exceptional about this film that you know that the at least that paddington isn't harming people even when probably they kind of deserve it mm-hmm. it is true that there is still a whole universe of crap children's entertainment of the minions and forthcoming peter rabbit variety uh yeah. which looks truly ghastly but there is also a wave of incredibly beautiful and humane kids movies and tv that exists that many many parents are finding and steering their kids towards that kids really really spark to and are entranced by as you saw in your theater mm-hmm. uh, and that it really means a lot to me as a parent and as a, a lover of art for for people of all sizes yeah. All right, let's move on to our uh, third segment. Late last week, the Times ran a pretty remarkable feature in the arts section. Isaac Oliver interviewed dozens of drag queens and accompanied a number of performers on a tour across, like, Minnesota to profile the state of the art of drag. The enduring popularity of RuPaul's Drag Race has created an economic boom in drag, but for many of the performers, making a living is still difficult, expensive, and physically taxing. 
And that's the queens who were on Drag Race. Mm. Brian, the, the arrow of cultural appropriation is sort of long pointed in one direction, right? <laughs> From the queer edges into the straight mainstream eventually. Does something feel different to you about this particular bonanza, about the entry of drag into uh, you know, the world of tour buses across northern Minnesota? That's a great question. I, I've actually come around. Um, I think if you'd asked me that question maybe two or three years ago, I might have I might have said, yeah, it's like totally, you know, drag race is is bad for drag, I guess. Um, but at this point, I actually think there's more of a conversation going on. There's a back and forth. Um, I think on the one hand, uh, drag race and this this piece in The New York Times does a great job of showing this drag race puts a lot of pressure on the economics uh, of drag. So, you know, in the past you would have Queens, uh, applying their art and their trade and making a living with very little. Um, and, and sort of, it was a really, really tough job to have. And now with drag race, if you get on that show, um, and there's, you know, uh, I think something like 120 Queens now who have been through, uh, you suddenly are making hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, you're working like crazy. I mean, you're, you're on those buses and, and planes and you, you don't get to go home. I think uh, in this piece, uh, Bob, the drag queen says that she's home like five days a month, uh, not consecutively. So, so that division has been set up. Um, and then I think on the other side, uh, there are Queens who are choosing not to do drag race who are, who are actively, and I, I know some of them here in New York who are actively not attempting that that route uh, and instead trying to reinvent the art or figure out how to do the art uh, in, in ways that don't need that kind of support um, and they can differentiate differentiate themselves. Um, one of the things the piece the piece really shows well, I think is that RuPaul and the show have a certain style uh, that they've championed over the seasons uh, and that style has then created a whole new like generation of queens who have that style. Uh, and so what, what's needed is, is diversity. And, and I think that's happening in some places. And I think the, you know, this, this profile and others are showing how that, that's starting to emerge, uh, as difficult as it is to fight against a, a monolith like that. Yeah. It was really fascinating to me to see the way that the, that one style becomes dominant, uh, and but then therefore becomes marketable. Right. So and so I, you know, I'm not a person who has a huge amount of experience with drag. And I would be curious how you got how you, Brian and you, June, if you have more of an experience with drag than I do, how would you define the the drag race style? And how does it differ from, for example, the style of the trailblazers uh, that the that the story profiled who had never appeared on drag race, but who are now sort of trying to make their careers in a post drag race world? I mean, I confess that I stopped watching Drag Race a few seasons ago. I can't even remember quite how many um, because it kind of seemed like it was all the same. Oh, it's another match race, you know, whatever. It's another match game, whatever. But I would say that the style is pretty, um, even though they typically start the season with some big girls to use the parlance and some big girls have done well. Uh, I don't know that any have ever won. Uh, Latrice Royale is certainly uh, a big name now, but I, I don't. She may be the most famous of that. Yeah, but I don't work. believe she ever won. So they tend to kind of, you know, one big girl might go, might kind of go through to a few rounds. Um, sort of avant-garde. Again, they'll typically have one or two kind of avant-garde performers, very broadly defined, something out of that pretty or or sort pageant of, sort of yeah look. pageant sort of look. And they might, you know, again, they might a, a, spe- a very Special queen might do quite well, get quite get along in the competition, but they're probably not going to win. Although I 
guess probably at least one has. But somebody like, you know, even Sharon Nettles, for example, you know, who's really, you know, just a bit edgy, not particularly avant-garde, but a little kind of horror drag almost. Well, and the show has a, a domesticating force yes. on those people typically. Yes, they yes, they yes. sort of are all for the people who are, yeah, who are sort of club kid or avant-garde or, or a little more punk and their sensibilities um, are often challenged by the judges to um, they sort of use the words like expand or, or be brave, you know, and, and brave means wearing a pageant gown often yeah, yeah. Uh, and, instead of the sort of more to, to my, my uh, to my eye, more interesting looks that they do. Um, they, and they also really prioritize comedy, which, you know, is good for television. That makes yeah. for a good show. It makes for a good episode. When you're playing those games, you want somebody who can be sharp and witty. Yeah. Uh, the people who are witty do well, and so they should in life, as in Drag Race. I mean, it's very much built in the image of RuPaul, who is yeah. who is a glamour queen, has always more or less been that. I mean, in the 80s, maybe a little more punk, but but yeah. but now, certainly since the 90s, that. Um, and, you know, the interesting thing is that it's created, and our um, columnist, uh, our sort of queer culture and drag columnist, Miss Cracker for Slate, has written about... Uh, Instagram queens. So there's like a whole whole generation of, of sort of younger queens who have learned from Drag Race that what matters is the look somewhat more than the performance. Um, and although the show does have performance, but it, I, I think it does uh, prize look over that. And so you've got these queens who essentially do drag and photograph it and then often don't even go out. Mm-hmm. Don't go to a club, don't go do a performance at a, at a bar uh, and just do that at home. Um, and then uh, sometimes at this point get on the show and aren't very good because yeah. they but all because all they know how to do is paint uh, they don't know how to, to to hold a crowd or anything like that and so they cannot read for Phil they cannot read for Phil they can't read for anything and so uh, so that's 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 an interesting effect of, of what you have when you have such a, a large presence in, in a particular subcultural space yeah it's so mind-boggling to me because that seems that seems so unfun it seems like the all the fun <laughs> of drag would be in in the parade and the performance and the communal spirit of it, not just in doing the look in front of your like cell phone. Yeah. And well, I think, I mean, one of the things that I always try to convey to people, I'm a, yeah, I'm a big fan of drag. I think drag is like one of the most important things uh, gay culture has ever produced. Uh, and one of the things I always try to convey to folks about it is that it's not just dress up. What it is, is it's like a, it's sort of like a Wagnerian, like total art. I mean, it's got theater, visual art, fashion, comedy, music, dance. It's, and, and it's interactive on top mm-hmm, of that. So mm-hmm. it's in, in, in the places where it was invented and as it continues to be practiced, uh, in sort of its most interesting forms to me, you're talking to the audience. You're often like among the audience. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the bars I go to in New York, the Queens are right next to you. You'll, you'll get kicked in the face if you, if you're, you know, too close to a dance number. And so it, it's really this incredible mix of things uh, that that I can't really think of another art form that quite accomplishes that. Um, and Drag Race really only shows a slice of it. Uh, and so I think it's natural that there would be queens who are, you know, some of whom are in this piece, uh, who are resisting that and want want really to do the full thing and, and explore the, the the full range of what the art can offer. And there was something that was so sad and yet very, very believable to me in that was mentioned in the Times piece of when the RuPaul drag, RuPaul's Drag Race queens go on these tours, uh, when they show up at places, they people might the people who show up for the shows and you know pay their money might be in the audience for one number and then they leave and get in line for the meet and greet mm-hmm. or to have because really what they're there for, uh, and this is a little reductive because um, it's not them saying it, but it 
doesn't seem like an unreasonable conclusion. Is they're there to take a picture with a RuPaul queen, uh, which they will put on their social media. And then they, so really they were wanting a brush with fame. And that, I understand it. I totally understand it. But that's depressing to me because I'm not a, like a giant, um, you know, co- connoisseur of drag. But the times that I have the, like, just the sweetest feelings, you know, it's almost like a Paddington 2 kind of situation, <laughs> is, you know, are these just very sweet, very um, kind of loving moments of community. Like, I just remember going to a lesbian bar in D.C. in the 80s with, like, all these butch lesbians putting money, you know, putting wands into the sort of G-string of a drag queen who I, I is no longer with us, I'm sure, called Ella Fitzgerald, mm. who was a big girl. And wasn't really the greatest, you know, she, but she had spirit. And, you know, just like this, what a weird thing. Butch lesbians tipping a, 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 a female impersonator who wasn't really, you know, it, it wasn't that succeeding. good. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't succeeding <laughs> and wasn't like, wouldn't be the kind of woman they'd try to date or would date. So, it was, you know, so, but it was something just so beautiful about it. Or once I was in Iowa uh, and went to a very local uh, drag show in a bar that used to be a McDonald's and just like the the, the audience uh, it was amazing like people many of whom I think were not gay at least yet or maybe ever who just felt this community there yeah. that they didn't Great. and I don't think they would have gone to that bar if there wasn't a drag show yeah hearing well, you guys talk about the way that the that that the prevalence of drag race and that particular form of drag was sort of narrowed the idea of what that is is fascinating to me because the the echoes that this story had for me um, it echoed the experiences of many many different fringe cultures that have struggled to sort of stay authentic and reward their pioneers when they attain some kind of unexpected mass market success and the story that this actually reminded me of is a, is a story that ran in a completely different outlet just two weeks ago on the npr website um by a writer named steve knopper and i guess this is sort of like the like the painfully straight version of this story but it was called the grunge gold rush and it was a piece looking back on the very brief few years post nirvana when every record company was looking for some weird ass band that maybe wore flannel and was from an industrial town and they would sign them to a million dollar deal and tour them. And, and for a very brief moment, like that fringe culture flourished and was a route to financial success for people who maybe could never have dreamed Mm -hmm. of making art for a living. Um, and then it collapsed. And the, you know, the story of this piece was for so many of those bands for the jaw boxes of the world, these million dollar deals they signed with record companies left them eventually with nothing. And there were a few happy stories mixed in there of bands who just took that money and invested it. And now are still bands making interesting music today and like have a, a like a small house. But, you know, I worry if there's like some drag crash coming, like the way that grunge crashed. Do you guys see that happening? I mean, I suspect that the, these tours are maybe not for not a long term thing. Yeah, I think I think we're getting to a point 
I, I've always wondered if Drag Race, given you know, now that we're in season season three of All Stars begins this week, and uh, season ten of the regular show will be later this year. I think, and you've got like I said, 120 queens out there. I think that there may be a point where that particular style will have saturated the market. Mm. And it's already true, like in, in New York and in other cities, people are seeking out these these other folks who are doing different stuff. And I think, I think uh, you know, the true fan, I don't want to say true fans, the fan, fans of, of, of a more folk version of drag, for <laughs> lack of a better term, are are supporting those those people. And so I think what you'll see is just like, I don't know if it'll be a crash, but maybe a, a calming and a, and a, and a, a mixing of, of those things again. Um, you know, Miss Cracker wrote about um, a flourishing of drag TV uh, mm. that's happened in the wake of Drag Race where Vice has the Trixie and Katya show. Um, there's some drag show out of Canada called like Dragula that I've never even seen. Uh, and, there's, and then there's others. Um, I doubt that that will continue forever. I think it's sort of a moment where people are interested in trying it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I doubt that there's that there's an audience to really sustain that for for any you know considerable length of time. And I think that's fine. I think it's natural that these things you know that there's like a spike and then and then it'll kind of reincorporate back into the culture and and be interesting again um and what i hope happens is that it makes like it's very easy for us as as a fan for me as a fan to sit here and say you know struggle breeds creativity right like the 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 (laughs) the download stuff that this or not download the um the underground yeah the the under exactly the underground culture is 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 the most pure and it, and it you know queens having to like burn themselves with a glue gun to like put together a look is the best i don't i know too many queens who struggle too much and you know don't have enough money for rent or food to to say that i i think it would be better if queens you know the piece points out uh, and this seems true to me that even in new york which is like a gay capital the most you could hope to make in a, in a gig from the bar itself is maybe $200 to $250. Uh, and then tips on top of that, which when I just by looking at it, I typically see no more than, than 50, maybe a hundred if it's like a particularly big show. So, you know, they're not making much per night considering that they're putting in four hours at, at least probably to get dressed and just untold sums mm. to, to purchase all the, the outfits and the makeup and the wigs. I mean, when I, once we filmed it, filmed me being put in drag for Slate a couple of years ago and we went out and bought the, the basic stuff to do that because the Miss Cracker who put me in drag had a lot of things that I could use. Uh, we spent like a hundred dollars, $150 just on like a wig and like tights and, Krylon grease paint like it like it is so expensive and yeah. so what i hope could happen is that this this spike and 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 sort of drag race bubble distributes out some of the some of that support and and money and access to to many more queens um you know maybe that won't happen but i hope so because everybody deserves you should be able to make a living at art uh, mm-hmm. ideally and so you know hopefully that could happen with us too all right. The piece is called "Is This the Golden Age of Drag?" Yes and no. It's in the New York Times. It's by Isaac Oliver. Uh, you can also find Brian Louder, uh, the video of him trying out drag on Slate.com, and you can read Ms. Cracker on drag on Slate as well. Let's move on to endorsements. June, what are you endorsing this week? Before I get to my endorsement, I just want to take a moment to recommend another Slate show. Hmm, the Double X Gab Fest. Great choice. So the Double X Gab Fest. The hosts are amazing. There's Hannah Rosen, who is the co-host of NPR's Invisibilia. There's Noreen Malone, who's an editor at New York Magazine. And there's, who's the other one? Oh, yes, it's me, June Thomas. I'm also on the 
double X Gabfest. We talk about feminism, we talk about gender, we talk about sexuality, we talk about TV shows. On the next episode of the Double X Gabfest, which will be released on Thursday, January 25th, we will be discussing the continued fallout from the Aziz Ansari story that was published on Babe.net. We'll talk about the one fight that couples have. And we will talk about Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, who recently announced that she's pregnant. Every other Thursday, look for it wherever you download your podcasts. But for my endorsement this week, I have been doing this a lot. I have been listening to Radio 4, to British, to the BBC, basically, on the BBC iPlayer radio app on my phone. Um, So I've been recommending a lot of uh, shows that I've heard on there recently. But the last two weeks, I went to bed listening to a 45-minute uh, police procedural uh, that was, you know, over 10 parts. Uh, so, yeah, a police procedure, se- a poli- police procedural serial. That is not a good phrase. But anyway, it was called Stone and it was set in Manchester and it was very twisty turny. And uh, although the first episode caused a friend of mine to li- who lives in Manchester said, mm, bit stereotypical. But if you don't know all the Manchester stereotypes, yeah, you wouldn't... I have no idea what's a stereotypical Manchester. Yeah, you wouldn't know. You wouldn't know. But although you will find some uh, some little lines like that's like borrowing from Liam to pay Noel, you know, so little Manchester <laughs> jokes like that. But um, it was really, really good. And I mean, 10 episodes, 45 minutes. That is so much good listening. Uh, so Stone on a Radio 4 on the BBC iPlayer. Thank you. Brian, what about you? So I have a, a drag-related um, uh, endorsement uh, that I'd like to share. Um, so a few a few months ago now, I think in November, um, we lost a queen, a very uh, important and famous queen called Flawless Sabrina, who um, was a friend of mine, a sort of mentor, but also a mentor to many, 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 many queer people, um, famous and not... Uh, and she, she was in her late seventies, um, and passed away. But one of the things she did in her, her long life, uh, that was pretty incredible was she was in a documentary, uh, in 1968 called the queen. Um, and this documentary shows, um, pre Stonewall, uh, gay life specifically among drag queens in the form of a pageant that flawless, uh, whose, uh, other name is Jack Dorshaw that Jack threw um, from starting in the 50s and, and, and into the 60s. So it was a national drag uh, competition pageant, somewhat like Drag Race in, in, in its way. Um, and it would go f- all over the country to different towns, and you would have queens come out of the woodwork in those towns to perform. Uh, and the film follows uh, a uh, the culmination performance in New York, uh, and I, I guess it was taped in 67 probably, um, where Andy Warhol is a judge and many other celebrities come out, um, and you get a real sense of what it was like to do drag at that time. Um, you see some of the early uh, ballroom uh, queens, uh, the House of La Beja is represented there uh, before that became a huge, huge movement. Um, so it's an incredible documentary, very worth watching, both as a historical thing and just as a, a beautiful film. Uh, it is currently kind of goes in and out of YouTube um, right this morning. I checked it and it was there. Uh, so so Google just uh, the Queen 1968 and uh, learn a little bit about where drag comes from and how we got to where we are. Some of the scenes from the Queen are in, incorporated into the credits of Transparent, right? That's correct. Yeah. So one of one of Flawless's queer grandchildren is Zachary Drucker, who uh, was a producer and, and sort of creator, uh, creative force behind Transparent. And that's that's how that happened. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. That is amazing. Thank you. 
Um, this week, I am endorsing a movie that showed up strong in the Oscar nominations, sort of unexpectedly strong and surprised some people. That movie is Phantom Thread. It's directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. Maybe uh, you watch the Oscar nominations on Tuesday morning and in between your your joy at Tiffany Haddish and her mispronunciations of people's names, you were like, you saw Phantom Thread get nominated for everything for Best Picture and Best Director and Best Actor, and you were like, ugh, another boring costume drama getting all the boring nominations. But I'm here to tell you that if that is what you think Phantom Thread is, you have no idea. <laughs> Phantom Thread is nothing like you think it is. Forget peach fucking, forget fishmen. Phantom Thread is the most delightfully perverted movie of the year. It also features a tour de force performance from our greatest living actor, Leslie Manville. Daniel Davis <laughs> is also in it. See it. It's great. I cannot recommend it enough. But don't read anything else about it. Just go see it. Brian June, thank you for joining us on the show. You will find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us or you can email the, the non-basic cable crew at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note on Facebook at facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. Our Twitter feed is at slate cult fest. For Brian and June, I'm Dan Coyce. We'll see you soon.